0: Up. Uh, what a blessing it is to be with you all this evening. I know that uh, the Lord's Church, just as uh, our neighbors and our friends, our communities, are going through so many uh, various complications and trying times. I don't know about you, but what I've noticed in the midst of all of this uh, is truly the wisdom of God and to be able to see the church in action and to see God's plan for organization God's plan for ministry, God's plan for comfort. Uh, Certainly, this has been a difficult time. This has been a a hard time, but uh, we can see so much goodness throughout it because of the blessings of our Lord. It is uh, so wonderful to be with this congregation. Um, You all mean just so much to us as a family. You mean so much to us in this community, obviously uh, in this state and what you do for the Lord and his kingdom is extremely encouraging and is uplifting to all of us the congregation at coming of course looks to you uh, as as great brethren and uh, we're so very blessed to be close to you in proximity and also to be aligned in our efforts to serve the lord faithfully according to the gospel i am so thankful for the eldership of this congregation Uh, as you've heard it said before usually the one who is blessed the most when it comes to a class or any kind of topic or subject is the speaker it is the one that is teaching on that subject or topic and i have been Richly blessed as I have prepared for this as I have prayed for this as I have been mindful of the eldership and their vision and their theme and uh, thoughts concerning this year Kyle has sent me some information regarding that and I see that the 2020 vision is Indeed focusing on what really matters of course that is a theme that is always Relevant is always going to be beneficial But what better way in your summer series to look back to the prophets to look back to the minor prophets to look back to those such as Micah, given the kind of complexity and chaos that they were in the midst of as they were trying uh, to understand more about the Lord and about his his mission and about his purpose. And so let's uh, let's dive into this book together. I could spend a a great deal of time looking at the background. I could uh, go about this in a multitude of ways, but really... I think since we only have uh, 45 minutes to an hour, it's probably best for us to try to pick it apart as best we can in view of the context of when Micah was speaking, of when he was writing, of the audience that he was addressing in the immediate uh, circumstance, and then try uh, and parallel that with how we can make application to his major points and the major themes that we can pull out of the book uh, for our lives today. The name Micah means who is like Jehovah. Who is like Jehovah. And as we break down this book and as we, as we look at these major points, I want you to keep that, that question, that name, obviously Micah, uh, at the forefront of your mind. Because he will end the book referencing this name, referencing his name, the, the phrase here, who is like Jehovah. And also, it will carry on throughout the New Testament. And like mentioned, it is extremely relevant and special for us today to ask the question as well. There were a great deal of sources consulted in order to put together this material. I want to just cite some of them for your benefit and also to give proper credit, because certainly a lot of what is pulled out from this book is not of my own origin, but was made by great preachers of the past or current excellent great preachers of today. Brother B.J. Clark, who is the director at the Memphis School of Preaching, taught My class in the book of Micah also has a great deal uh, of good writings as it relates to the Minor Prophets. Brother Robert R. Taylor also has uh, done a sermon in the lectureship uh, Truth and Love in Pulaski, Tennessee, where he focused in on the book of Micah. And you can also uh, reference uh, material from those such as Jack P. Lewis who has written a book on the minor prophets and also has a great deal of good information for this book. And so let's dive right in and let's look at some major points. Let me go ahead and hit them for you. So if you are taking notes, And if you want to kind of follow along, it's always good, uh, at least for me. I like to know where it is I'm going so that I know how far along I am and how much longer I have until we get there. And so let's look at these points. Number one, the provocation, the provocation. Number two, the punishment. Number three, the prophecy. Number four, the pattern. And number five, the plan. Let's begin by noticing here the provocation. Why is it that Micah is writing? What's kind of the background? What's the issue here? What is the challenge that the children of God are facing? Uh, Why is it that the children of God have provoked God? To inspire Micah to write this book, well, uh, for starters, there was a problem of idolatry. There was a problem of idolatry. If you look at chapter one in verse five, all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? And so Micah is one of the few uh, prophets here, one of the few minor prophets, who's addressing both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. He's dealing with these capitals, Samaria as well as Judah. And what is the problem that they are facing? They've gone into idolatry. They are worshiping idol gods. They have made idol gods. They are bowing down to them. They have worship ecosystems in order to fund these uh, various forms of worship and so Micah is calling them out regarding their idolatry but he also calls them out regarding their evil meditation they were not just idolatrous but in the same token they were also uh, just like those during the days of Noah when God would send the flood they were meditating their imagination their their thoughts their heart was focused on evil now It's not surprising at all to those of us who are Bible students to see this correlation. Hey, if I'm going to uh, escape and exit from my belief in Jehovah God, the one true and only living God, the God who does not uh, dwell here amongst men, who does not need a temple wherein he can be put or placed because he created all things, but I can create and mold my own little g God... Well, then all of a sudden, hey, I can do whatever it is I want to do. I can think however it is I want to think. I can create my own standards. I can create my own commandments and decide to live how I want to live. Look at their evil thought process. Look at their evil hearts. Micah chapter 2 and verse 1 beginning, Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and take them by violence, also houses and seize them. So they oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. They would devise evil. They would devise wickedness. They would conceive with it, if you will, throughout the night as they were there lying in their bed. Their minds, rather than meditating upon the word of God, And the beauty of righteousness, just as Paul will command to the Philippians in chapter 4 and verse 8. They instead would allow their minds to go to covetousness, to go to wickedness, to go to unrighteousness. And then it would hatch, and then it would give birth as they would carry out their devious plans. Look also in chapter 3. Notice here, beginning in verse 1, And I said, Hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel, Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh in the cauldron? Then they will cry to the Lord, but He will not hear them. He will even hide His face from them at that time because they have been evil in their deeds. These folks liked to meditate upon evil to the point where they began calling that which was good evil it's very similar to what isaiah would prophesy about in isaiah chapter 5 and in verse 20 woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isaiah would actually be a companion to Micah. They would both be prophesying around the same time. Isaiah was, as you've probably heard before, the city prophet, if you will. He dealt with the major geopolitical issues. He would deal with the rulers, with the high courts. Micah, however, he was more like the country preacher. He would deal with the common man. He would deal with the everyday man, the folks that were out there in the field. And so what he's noticing here is, hey, uh, the the wickedness and the evil that is taking place here, it is destroying the weakest, the most feeble, the the, the poorest of the communities within Judah, within Israel. Why? Because that which is evil has now been defined as good. Isaiah would say, and again, chapter 5 and verse 20, that which is good is now defined as good. And so you have idolatry, you have evil meditation, you also have an issue of arrogance. An issue of arrogance. Look with me in chapter 3. Notice here in verse 11 toward the end. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. We are God's people. We are God's nation. We can do whatever we want. God has made promises that being a just and true God, He has to fulfill. And so, really, uh, we're as good as gold, living however we want to live. Destruction will never come upon us. We're the Lord's people. Notice also in chapter Uh, In chapter 3. Notice here in, in the beginning part of verse 11, notice their greed. Notice their greed. Her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord. And say, is it not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. So their, their greed, their covetousness, again, it was rampant. Notice also in chapter 6 and verse 6, the extent in which this greed and this arrogance got to them. Uh, have you ever had your children, as you're trying to discipline them, you're trying to train them and teach them something, that you've told them maybe 100,000 times it would seem in your head. And they respond to you with something along the lines of, Mom and Dad, I just can't ever do anything right. Is there anything I can ever do that's good enough for you, Mom or Dad? Sometimes we experience that in the home. Sometimes that thought process exists in a family unit. Well, it would also exist in God's family in the Old Testament. As these folks were evil in their imagination, as they were practicing idolatry, as they were uh, greedy and covetous, they would dare to ask the question to God, notice chapter 6, the beginning there of verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God. Hey God, what will you ever be happy with? God, you're just impossible to please. They were completely and totally arrogant, given the antithesis of their life as compared to what they thought regarding how God should view them and how God was the one who actually should be accused The provocation, it has to do with idolatry, evil meditation, arrogance, greed, but also look at the falsehoods. Notice chapter 3 and verse 5. Chapter 3 and verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make my people stray, who chant peace while they chew with their teeth, who prepare war against him, who puts nothing into their mouths. In other words, they weren't concerned at all with what it is that God had to say. They weren't concerned at all with the inspiration and the will of God. But they were willing to be bought. And if they weren't paid appropriately, then war would come upon the one that they would be prophesying and declaring divination unto. It's not that much different from what would eventually come in Jeremiah's day. As Jeremiah would write in chapter 5, in verse 30, a wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. He goes on in chapter 6, in verse 16, it says... Uh, they've healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people, slightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Some of these folks may have repented. Some of these folks may have changed their life. But because the prophets, because the preachers were being bought off and paid off to keep their mouths shut, they didn't know of the coming destruction. They didn't know of the coming captivity that would come upon them. And so Micah here is dealing with the provocation of God's people. Now, it's interesting because this provocation and this sin and this wickedness didn't just randomly come about. They didn't just wake up one day and say, hey, you know what? We're kind of tired of serving the Lord faithfully. Let us leave him and his commandments No, that's not what happened at all. Uh, If you look in the book of Exodus, you see that God had specific commands as to how the land of Canaan, the promised land, the Philistines, the the people of the land should be dealt with. Chapter 34, beginning there in verse 10, uh, God says, Behold, I make a covenant before all thy people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation and all the people among which thou art shall see the work of the Lord, for it is a terrible thing that I will do with thee. Observe thou that that which I command thee this day. Behold, I drive out before thee the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, whither thou goest, lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. But ye shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. For thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous god. Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go a-whoring after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods. And one call thee, and thou eat of his sacrifice. And thou take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go a-whoring after their gods, and make thy sons go a-whoring after their gods. Thou shalt make thee no multitude and gods and these people came out of Egypt they came out of idolatry that nation obviously being the prominent dominant nation of the world during that time and being a a heavily idolatrous people God now sending them into the promised land, preparing to send them into the promised land. He would train them throughout those wilderness wanderings, uh, hopefully that they would learn and be taught and clearly see the need to rely on almighty Jehovah God rather than those physical things. But then they would go into that land which floweth with milk and honey and all of a sudden be wooed by the idols and by the influences of the people of that land. And God says, I don't want that to happen. In order for that to be avoided, you have to utterly destroy what's going on over there. Well, then we get to the book of Judges. And we see in Judges chapter 2, beginning there at verse 1, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Boshem and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare unto you. And it came to pass, when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voice and wept. Folks, decisions have consequences. You might go into a situation today, a situation that you know you should avoid, a relationship you know you should avoid, a path you know you should avoid, and you might think to yourself, yeah, but it's not that bad yet. I'll influence them rather than them influence me, and I'll just cleave closer and closer, but it will be fine, I'm a Christian. Slowly but surely over time, just as the women did with Solomon, your heart will begin to turn. It may not happen right away. You may go on thinking that all is fine and dandy and there's no need to completely destroy the kind of wickedness and sin that we clearly see in scriptures, where to stay far away from and in no way allow it entry into our lives. Paul would explain to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3 and in verse 5. It's very interesting the language uh, that's used here by the Apostle Paul when you consider what was being required by God back there as the Israelite people were moving through, uh, having left bondage of Egypt, getting ready to go into the land of Canaan, then entering into that land and failing to destroy all that was around them. In verse 5 of Colossians chapter 3, the new King James says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. The King James Version actually starts the the phrase there of the passage, mortify. The idea is to utterly and completely destroy it. Shall a man put fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? How do we learn from the provocation that the children of Israel, the children of Judah had engaged in to provoke God regarding this letter and the work that Micah had done back there and apply it to us today. We ask ourselves the question, how serious do I take sin? Do I look at sin as... Someone will maybe look at a scale and say, well, I have a, a, a lot of righteousness over here. I attend Bible class. I attend worship. I read my Bible on occasion, but I'm also engaged in this sin over here, but it's not daily. It's not something I'm constantly involved in, and, and I'm allowing certain influences to affect me, but I still got control over it. Folks, God says to mortify, to utterly destroy. He would likewise go on and explain to the uh, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in verse 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits or good morals. Now I see that we have a lot of young people in this uh, auditorium. I think that's usually maybe not the case on a typical Wednesday night. You have Bible classes taking place. And so, young people, the book of Micah speaks to you just as it speaks to all of us adults. What kind of friendships are we forming? What kind of relationships are we cultivating? How are we managing those relationships, and how are they developing over time? God's people back there in the days of Micah, around 700 B.C., allowed the influence of sin to slowly but surely become more and more integrated into their lives to the point where they had provoked God to anger and wrath because of their idolatrous and wicked ways. Let's go on to number two and think about the punishment. What kind of punishment is God going to bring because of this provocation? Well, we see that it is going to be destruction. Look there, chapter 1, and notice here in verse 3, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Destruction. You go on to chapter three, and notice here in verse 12. Chapter 3 and verse 12, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field, Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Shame would also be brought to God's people. You know, it's fascinating to look at chapter 1, verses 10 through 15. We're going to go through the, the work of John Phillips and what he's been able to pull out from this passage as it relates to the wordplay here that Micah uses. There's various Hebrew words that, that sound like certain things and, and Micah is going to lay beside those Hebrew words and those Hebrew places, those places of residence. And he's going to show how ashamed they're going to be, how stuck they're going to be, how laughable of a situation they're going to be in when God brings about his punishment. It's interesting when we think about this style being used. Uh, Folks, I don't think a preacher is going to get very far... (laughs) unless he either has or develops a thick skin. Uh, Paul tells Timothy plainly, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, to preach the word, to be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Uh, The idea there, reproving and rebuking, is to chide, that is to discipline harshly. Now, usually when that occurs, folks don't make friends. Folks usually get a lot of pushback. Preachers usually can have a rough time trying to do the work of the Lord in declaring the sin and the dangers of sin and the eternal reality we all are facing. And sometimes elderships or or other brethren will, will pull preachers aside and will say, hey, you know, we just need to avoid these topics altogether. Or, hey, preacher, you know what? You said something and it hurt so-and-so's feelings. Now, folks, the gospel's offensive, period. We ourselves don't need to be offensive and be rude about declaring it. Preach the truth in love. Teach the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. But at the same time, there are situations (laughs) where sarcasm, wordplay, difficult things to hear are necessary. Why? Because it causes folks who aren't paying any attention to all of a sudden kind of prick up, their ears kind of perk up, red flags start going off, and then they start to think. Micah is dealing with, as we'll see shortly, with folks whose heart was not in their service to God. They knew what they were supposed to do. They went through the motions. How is Micah going to get their attention? As a matter of fact, it's pretty interesting that Micah actually begins... The letter here, notice verse 2. Hear all you peoples, listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Now, who is it that he is addressing in the beginning there, verse 2? The whole entire earth, all the nations of the earth. Let me ask you a question. Would Judah and Israel be willing to hear that message? Oh, you're going to talk about the other nations. I'm first in line. I'm ready to hear it. Then, as we've already seen, he will go on in verse 5 and say, Yeah, the nations I'm dealing with here, they're you. Well, how's he going to get their attention? He's going to have to use some wordplay here that will shame them. God's punishment is destruction, but it's also shame. I want you to imagine you lived in Los Angeles. And someone came up to you as you were trying to, uh, maybe in your mind, you thought you were trying to to live a life that was right for God, but really your actions and your behavior was totally opposite. And someone came up and they knew that and they said, huh, why do they call it Los Angeles? The city of angels? (laughs) There's definitely no angels here. There's definitely no, no good folks here. Well, you'd be a little embarrassed. You'd maybe be prod it a little bit and wonder, why is it that person saying that to me? So Micah, here in this passage, he will deal with various cities. Uh, just let's look at a couple of these. Uh, Gath, the idea in the Hebrew is the word tell. Tell it not in tell town. Uh, Afra, roll in dust at dust town. The idea again being dust. Saphir, which is the idea of beauty. Beauty shamed at beauty town. Z'anon, not no going out from out town. Be'azil, no neighborliness in neighbor town. Jerusalem, no peace at peace town. God says you're going to be shamed. Whatever pride you have and where you come from and what you think your community's all about, <laughs> it's not going to exist anymore. The punishment would also include silence chapter 3 and verse 6, we read there, therefore you shall have night without vision. You shall have darkness without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be dark for them. God's no longer going to be speaking to his people, but you're also going to have Captivity. Notice chapter 1 and verse 16. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of your precious children. Enlarge your bald, baldness like an eagle, for they shall go from you into captivity. Notice also chapter 4 and verse 10. Chapter 4 and verse 10. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city. You shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now, it's pretty interesting here, uh, chapter 4, verse 10, because the ruling power that is threatening Israel and Judah during this time is Assyria. And it would be a Syria that would cause a problem for the north to the point where uh, Samaria was eventually taken over and the north was no longer in existence. But here Micah is talking about Babylon. Who's Babylon? Uh, folks, that would almost be like uh, the president or some politician getting up today and saying, everyone beware. We need to be on guard of New Zealand. They pose a tremendous threat to the United States of America. Uh, We'd all kind of laugh and chuckle and scratch our heads and wonder what they were talking about. The enemies that our country typically looks at today, uh, Russia, Iran, uh, China, we don't look at New Zealand. What are you talking about? Who is that? Well, Micah here is prophesying of a nation that had yet to rise to power that they hadn't even heard of and is saying, hey, you're going to go into captivity through Babylon, Judah. You're going to be punished. Now, to these folks who were living with the imagination of their heart, constantly being on evil, (laughs) planning it, plotting it throughout the night, these threats, these kinds of punishments would mean very little to them. You think about folks that we plead with, that we uh, beseech to obey the gospel. Hey, they're living large. All is well. They're living in luxury. They don't have a care in the world. They're going through the motions in worship. they they're occasionally, from time to time, interested in uh, deeply praying to God and giving them his heart, but by and large, not really. And So we plead with them and tell them what's coming, but what do they do? They scoff. They don't think it's going to happen. Nothing bad has happened in a long time. Why would anything bad happen now? Exactly what Peter has to deal with in 2 Peter chapter 3. Notice what he states there in verse 3, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust. What are they going to be asking? Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this, they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. It's going to happen. Verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. He desires that folks come to repentance. Notice verse 10. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Folks, the day is coming. Now, they may not have thought that the punishment was ever going to come upon them back during Micah's day. And folks today likewise think the same, but we know based upon the promises and the evidence that God has brought forth that that day will come as a thief in the night, and we must always be ready. Let's look at the prophecy. Let's look at the prophecy. Uh, let's first get a little bit of backstory here regarding who it was that uh, Micah was prophesying to, who it was that was in rule during that time, and what it was that uh, the rulers responded with, given his prophecies. Uh, Micah chapter 1 and verse 1, we learn there who it is that Micah is in the midst of as he's prophesying. Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Let's go over now to 2 Kings. 2 Kings in chapter 19. 2 Kings in chapter 19. And let's just get an idea of what it is that Hezekiah is dealing with regarding the Assyrians. Remember, the northern kingdom, never a good king in the bunch. They were a lot worse off when it came to idolatry and their wickedness. They were making alliances to go against Judah. Hezekiah here is feeling the pressure and the turmoil. If you think about the Middle East today, what do you think of? Chaos. Well, folks, it wasn't that much different then. This was the kind of circumstances that God's people were being uh, cared for and provided for by him. And so there was a lot of pressure by these rulers as to really what it was that they were going to follow, what it was they were going to believe. And so uh, Sennacherib of Assyria, he's threatening Hezekiah, he's threatening Judah. And we see here that Hezekiah is receiving these threats. Notice verse 15. He prays before the Lord and says, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Who is Hezekiah relying on? Who is he pleading with? He's pleading with God. It would end up being answered by Isaiah. Remember, he was a companion during the work of Micah. Notice beginning there in verse 20 of the same chapter. But notice as the Assyrians are right outside of Jerusalem, right outside of Hezekiah, uh, God says plainly concerning the king of Assyria, Verse 32, he shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return. And he shall not come into the city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Folks, not even an arrow would come into the city as it's surrounded by this army. Notice verse 35. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. They see the corpses all dead. That army disperses. Now, why is it that all of this came about? What is it that Hezekiah would do as it related to uh, idolatry, as it related to the threats of their spirituality upon the kingdom of God's Old Testament people. Notice in Second Chronicles chapter 29, Second Chronicles chapter 29, begin with me there in verse 1. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. Now, Micah's work has already been going on here. Hezekiah takes now the throne. Verse 2, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. But what does he have to do to get there? Verse 3, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. And he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him, have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord, and turned their backs on him. They have also shut up the doors of the vestibule, put, uh, put out the lamps, and have not burnt incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering, as you see with your eyes. For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons, our daughters, and our wives are in captivity." Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him to serve him and that you should minister to him and burn incense. Hezekiah is going to have to clean house. Hezekiah is going to have to return God's people to the way that God commanded and expected to be worshiped. Now, folks, why is it that he's aware of this wrath? Well, it's because of the works of those such as Isaiah and Micah. Uh, God warns before he delivers his wrath, and it would be throughout this work of Micah that this warning would eventually be heard by Hezekiah. And we know uh, that Micah was heard because Jeremiah would actually refer and source Micah as justification as to why Jeremiah himself should not be destroyed for doing the exact same thing that the other Old Testament prophets were doing telling the rulers of the day and the people of the land of their evil and to turn from it. Notice in Jeremiah chapter 26, beginning there in verse 16, regarding Jeremiah and his life and the death that's about to come upon him. Verse 16 of Jeremiah 26, So the princes and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man does not deserve to die. For he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Then certain of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying, hey, guess what? There was another prophet named Micah in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And he spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah ever put him to death? Quoting here Micah chapter 3 and verse 12. Now folks, there's not very many cases where this occurs. One prophet referring to another prophet, referring to, uh, and I mean, this is the only case where he is actually using the fact that uh, another prophet's life was spared because of his prophecy, so spare my life. Micah and his prophecies were extremely impactful on the children of God upon the Old Testament kingdom of Israel, You also see there uh, that he, as we already mentioned, chapter 4 and verse 10, he would prophesy of a country, of a nation, of a power that would n- still rise 50 years hence. But he would also prophesy not only of their captivity into Babylon, but also of their return. Notice chapter 2 and verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. Of course, we see Cyrus bringing this about, for example, the beginning verses of Ezra as well as 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 22 and 23. Cyrus himself being named about 150 years prior to him even coming to rule. Micah likewise prophesying of the return of God's people to be able to rebuild their city. Now, what about his prophecies? as it relates to us today. Well, Micah would provide not only the fact that the Messiah would come, but would also provide the very location by which he would be born. Micah chapter 5 in verse 2. We see that carried out as... Uh, The wise men are consulting and uh, giving word to the rulers of the day who are concerned about the coming king of Israel in Matthew chapter 2. But also, notice Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And tell me if this doesn't look familiar to the companion who was doing the work of a prophet during Micah's day. Verse 1 of Micah chapter 4, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. That the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills; and peoples shall flow into it. Many nations shall come and say, "Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob." He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall the, uh, for out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Very similar, of course, to Isaiah chapter 2 and what we see being fulfilled, the fruition of this prophecy being carried out in Acts chapter 2. What's the takeaway for us, folks? During that time, given the punishment, given the provocation of God's people that deserved that punishment, given all the wickedness that's going on, God and his provisions and his providence would still be carried out with the focus and eternal mission of God being completed and being fulfilled, again, as we see there in Acts chapter 2. Paul will write in Ephesians chapter 3, Beginning there in verse 10, regarding the manifold wisdom of God, how might it be known by the church, how and to who, the principalities and powers in heavenly places, according to what? The eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, Just step back for a second and think about, again, the arrogance of this people in their greed, in their covetousness, in their evil imaginations, laughing and chuckling and saying, who is God who is ever going to destroy us? He has promises to keep. He has a mission to fulfill. We're a part of that. He's never gonna do anything to us. God refusing to allow their wickedness to go unchecked, demanding repentance, eventually carrying them out into captivity, scattering this nation abroad, but indeed bringing about his promise and his eternal purpose to build the church of Christ via the seed of David, just as he had always declared throughout the Old Testament times. Now folks, that's fascinating. I don't know about you if you've ever even touched the hem of the garment as it relates to to things on a strategic nature. But just go up and talk to one of the elders concerning their job and the work that they do for the vision of this congregation here in Buford. And the various building blocks that they have to put in place so that their plans that they devise today can actually maybe come about 5, 10, maybe 15 plus years from now. Now folks, even when the world is at your side and you're doing everything you can think to possibly do to carry about that kind of strategy and to bring about that kind of vision, guess what happens? Things go wrong. Plans a lot of times get completely dismissed and put aside. Well, we tried this, but it's not gonna work. It's time to completely go another direction. Now imagine if the very people that you were trying to help, the very folks that you were making that strategy around were against you, were opposed to you, laughed at any vision or authority or plan or strategy you have, And not only did that, but actually went in the opposite direction of what it is that you declared needed to occur in order for it to be brought about. Live in holiness. That's what God's people were expected to do. But yet God still fulfilled his mission. Folks, when we think about the prophecies here and the fulfillment of those prophecies... It ought to provoke us to praise and glorify and grow deeper in our trust and our love for God. Kyle told me that that clock back there was five minutes slow. And so I said, that means I can go by that clock, right? No, we have two more points and we'll get through them quickly. Let's just consider for a moment... The main crux of this book concerning the heart of the matter. Focusing on what really matters is the theme of this year. Well, Micah has to deal with what really matters as it related to the people of God and their worship. And we're going to see here, just briefly, a pattern that God has laid out for us so that we never get into a rut concerning our service to the Lord. Micah chapter 6, we see there beginning in verse 6. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Again, God, you're impossible to please. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Hey God, is the problem the quality of offerings? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Is it the quantity of offerings, God? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? God, what do I have to kill? How precious does it have to be so that you will just leave me alone? God through Micah, verse 8. He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? How dare they ask God the questions they're asking. But why are they doing it? They want to know what box do I have to check so my heart never has to be in it. I don't want to focus on what really matters, God. I want my life to be mine, so just let me kill something and get off my back. How much money will it take, God? How much property? How many possessions will it take to just satisfy you? Folks, all of that is easy peasy. The hardest thing we have to give God that he requires is our heart. He demands it. The pattern that God has shown us throughout scriptures. If you notice what Jesus brings in Matthew chapter 5 in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Matthew chapter 9 verses 10 through 13. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23. You pay tithes of cumin and anise, yet you you ignore the weightier matters of the law. Their hearts weren't in it. Jesus will go on and explain in Matthew 23 and verse 23 that they're not to uh, leave the others undone. In other words, God expects both, folks. (laughs) He expects the sacrifice, but why does the sacrifice come? It comes because I've given God my heart. And out of an abundant love for God and a desire to be with him, to please him, to serve him, to glorify him, obviously the obedience and the sacrifice come but the children of Israel, the children of Judah. Folks, although Hezekiah had thrown out the idols, although he had tried to clean up the waywardness that they had gone as it relates to worship, those physical idols were no longer there, but yet the habits remained. Micah will write in verse 16 of chapter 6, For the statues of Omri are kept, and all the work of the house of Ahab, and ye walk in their councils, that I should make thee a desolation, and the inhabitants thereof in hissing, therefore ye shall bear the reproach of my people. Now why is it so difficult for us to follow this pattern, to love mercy, to do justly to live in kindness and humility Uh, folks the reason is because as children of God we are in a dilemma we have to constantly fill our minds and study to show ourselves approved unto God thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee God I'm eating your word I'm filling your my life with your word and then By doing so, it is very challenging for us to look at others and to treat them with kindness, to treat them with mercy, to treat them being completely and totally aware of the long suffering, of the patience, and of the love that our God has had for us, who at one time were totally and completely opposed to him. Micah is preparing God's people. He's preparing the remnant, as we'll see there in verses 7 through 8 of chapter 5 as well as in chapter 7, verses 8 and 10. How is it they're supposed to live faithfully to God even though their nation has completely deserted him? Even though they're being punished and suffering in the midst of a Gentile, wicked nation and people when yet they themselves were striving. How are you going to get through it? You need to remember the mercy that God has had upon you. Folks, I don't know about you, but I don't like it when I don't get my way. I don't like it when trying times come. I don't like it when pain ensues. It hurts. I want to get out of it. I want to flee. I ask all these questions and wonder, why me? Why this? And it's at that time, it's in those moments when it's hardest not to just go through the motions. Not to just, whatever, here's the five acts of worship, let me just get it done. How am I going to get through it? How am I not going to retaliate? God has been merciful to me. And what is this all about? What is the book of Micah about? What is the coming of our Lord about? What is the incredible providence and power of God as seen through the preservation of God's people in the midst of all of this captivity and yet still the coming of the seed of Christ all about? It's about the redeeming love of God. Micah writes in chapter 7 beginning there in verse 18. Who is a god like unto thee? Micah. Who is like Jehovah? That pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage, he retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth of Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. The Gentile nations, all the nations of the earth, shall be blessed through the seed of Abraham. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. Why? Why? Because our God is a loving, merciful, redeeming God who desires our sins to be completely parted from us. So here's the question I leave with you tonight Are you like God? Are you like Micah? Who is like Jehovah? Do you desire the sins of those around you to be forgiven? God desires that all men will be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 3 and 4. But who is like him? It would be pretty difficult for this people who would be punished, destroyed, go into captivity all because of these nations around them who are Gentile people, to then, just as Jonah would have to realize, God loves them too. God also wants them to be saved. Well, who of us is like God and wants the same? It's wonderful to be with you this evening. I know I've gone a little over, it looks like. But... If you need to respond to the invitation, I trust that you have the elders' numbers. You can text them. You can reach out to them. If you're ready to be baptized and become a Christian, a child of God, by putting on Christ, Galatians chapter 3, 26 and 27. If you need prayers of the church, there are those available to assist you. You can reach out online or you can reach out again via text or here whichever way you all have deemed appropriate. So great to be with you this evening. Thank you all very much.